Welcome to Reformation Society tonight. Our special guest is Dr. Philip Stott. I've learned more science from Philip Stott than from all other sources combined. And I must say, Dr. Philip Stott has transformed my view of science on so many different areas. He is an original thinker. He thinks outside the box. He's biblical, he's scriptural. And it's quite a surprise and a shock to hear that he used to be an atheist and used to get involved in Christian bashing and he used to like to go to meetings uh, in order to tie Christians up a knot and uh, give them questions that they couldn't answer. And then he became a Christian and a theistic evolutionist and then finally became a creation scientist. So amazing. I first met Dr. Philip Stott something like 34 years ago while he was building the auditorium at Cross Savanta Mission, a 10,000 seat auditorium, absolutely stunning engineering and architectural feat. He was both the architect and the engineer who built it. And Philip Stott's been involved in so many things, and my favorite stories about him is when the Soviet Union collapsed, Uncle Philip had the opportunity to travel to many state universities across the old Soviet Union and present creation science and get standing ovations often from students and faculty. And in some cases, students standing up and saying, our lecturers have lied to us all these years. And uh, there was just an extraordinary, I couldn't imagine universities in America or Britain or South Africa for that matter, state universities opening up with the entire student body and, and faculty gathering to listen respectfully and quietly to creation science presentations, let alone giving standing ovations at the end. So uh, praise God that from South Africa, we have a creation scientist who is world-traveled, world-acclaimed, effective defender of the faith. Now, Uncle Philip, I could say so much more, but um, even though I'm not a scientist, I know this much. I've seen Uncle Philip give his presentations before hostile audiences at Stellenbosch University, at Cape Technicon, at University of the Western Cape, and at UCT. And I've seen these heads of departments frothing at the mouth. Uh, sometimes with books on, guidebooks on how to debate creation scientists in their hands, asking their questions, and Uncle Philip just rubbing his hands with joy and saying, I'm so glad you asked that question. And without looking at any notes, quoting chapter verse from their sources, demolishing their arguments. And even if I didn't understand all the, fun, all the scientific um, uh, implications, I did understand this. Uncle Philip could defeat the evolutionists in their own universities Professors, heads of departments were left speechless without an answer, and he is able to defeat them without even notes on their ground. Now, that speaks volumes. And we know that the evolutionists don't want to debate him. I know that because there have been numerous times that we've offered equal time on Radio Tigerberg on a satellite program for evolutionists who want to come and debate Philip Stott. They weren't willing to debate him. They're willing to be interviewed on their own, but they're not willing to debate a creation scientist. Certainly not Philip Stott. So shame on them. They don't even have the courage of their own convictions. Uncle Philip, thank you so much for being here. It's a privilege and a joy to have you. And tonight, Philip Stott's going to present us about the revolt against God and his word. Thank you. Good evening. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Hallelujah. Lord, we're thankful to be able to come before you this evening. The Lord and Master of this universe, 
creator who gave us the opportunity to be part of this wonderful creation. Lord, I'm thankful this evening to be able to talk to some of your children and I pray that you'll add your blessing. Amen. <laughs> I'd like to first of all start off by saying that nothing in life makes any sense unless you realize there is a great universal warfare going on. Uh, we tend to think of the spiritual realm as, oh well that's an addition. And this war in the spiritual realm, well, it doesn't really affect us very much. I believe the truth is entirely different. We are a sideshow. The real reality is what is going on in the spiritual realm. And we, for a time, are in this world part of this hidden warfare. And the Bible warns us, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. We are involved in some way in this warfare and the first rule of warfare is know your enemy. The British military intelligence in the Second World War said you must know your enemy better than he knows himself. Do we know our enemy? Are we concerned with the spiritual warfare that we're supposed to be involved in? A few years ago I saw a headline in one of the Bloemfontein newspapers, it said the Synod of the Dutch Reformed Church have decided that the devil does not exist and neither do demons. Well, that sounds as if the Dutch Reformed Church at least has completely given in. They're not involved in spiritual warfare at all. There isn't an enemy. I've been to many churches where they say, oh, well, this doesn't involve us. Jesus has got the victory and, well, the devil can't do anything to us. Lucifer has seven principalities. One of them, it's called the principality of contentment, is for Christians only. And the members of that principality are not out of the job. Their sole aim is to make Christians content with their walk with God. Oh, I got saved ten years ago and, well, I, I go to church, sometimes read my Bible, 
I even pray sometimes. I'm okay. Paul said, I don't count what I've done, what's past. Forgetting everything that's past, I reach forward for that for which God called me. Now, you can tell he didn't have a demon of contentment. But I've come a lot across a lot of Christians where I have thought, well, um, are you playing host to somebody you don't really want to be there? Now, this warfare is going on on every aspect of life. And there's one aspect that I'm particularly concerned with, science. Now, most people think, oh, science, that's got all the answers. If it's scientific, oh, well, you can't argue with that. If he's a scientist, well, he knows what he's doing. We can't argue with that. Well, what is science? When I started off my studies in science, all the textbooks began explaining what science is. And all of them started off, science is that branch of the search for knowledge which follows the scientific method. Well, what's the scientific method? The scientific method was devised in 1620 by Francis Bacon and he gave as the reason for putting forward the scientific method nature carries the stamp of the creator whereas man's reason carries the stamp of his own folly we will have it that all things are as we in our folly think they should be that's the way the greek Proto-science worked. You think up a good idea, and if you can defend that idea logically, then, well, yeah, that must be right. But it's often not right. If you want to find the truth about the Creator's creation, it's no good going to your own mind and saying, well, I think it should be like this. You have to go to the creation itself. And the scientific method, the search for knowledge about any phenomenon or process involves one, observation and measurement. You don't start with reasoning about it, like the Greeks did. You look, you observe what the creation is really like, take measurements on it. Then you search for a pattern in the observations and measurements. Then you propose a hypothesis to explain these patterns. Then you design critical experiments to test the hypothesis. And if the experimental results do not support the hypothesis, then you search for a new hypothesis, which explains both the old and the new. If a great deal of experimental evidence supports a hypothesis and there is not one that conflicts with it, it can be considered 
the law of science. And if at any stage any observation contradicts a hypothesis or a theory, it must be abandoned and a new one sought. Now, this total reliance on the creation to lead us into the truth made a huge difference because the so-called science up to that time much of it was totally wrong and nobody knew but the people that we look to up to as science we hear about we heard about them at school and the present scientific establishment still pretends that they are the models of today's scientists Isaac Newton, perhaps the greatest scientist that ever lived, he found the laws of motion, laws of gravity, optics. He developed important aspects of mathematics, which are critical to science. Uh, a biographer of Newton said, were it not for Newton's God, he would never have gone looking for his laws. All the original scientists were God-fearing men. Leonard Euler, one of the greatest mathematicians and scientists of all time, he developed Newton's mechanics to handle almost any problem. He developed aerodynamics, fluid dynamics, partial differential equations, which practically no scientist can work without these days. He went to Bible study. He attended a Bible study every day of his life. When he was in the cradle, his father took the Bible studies. When he grew up, he took the Bible studies. When he was old, his children brought their families to his Bible study. He went blind. But he still carried on with his Bible studies because he knew that the Bible off by heart in at least two languages. And he had this to say. In our searches into the phenomena of the visible world, in science, we are subject to humiliating weaknesses and inconsistencies. And he came to the conclusion, a revelation, with capital R, he's talking about the Bible, was absolutely necessary to us and we ought to avail ourselves of it with the most powerful veneration. Then we have Gottfried Leibniz. He was perhaps the last of the great generalists. There wasn't a field of study that he wasn't an expert on. He's particularly well known for his maths and his science. And he said, it is especially in sciences that we see the wonders of God, his power, wisdom and goodness. That is why since my youth, I've given myself to the sciences that I love. Now, these are the original science, scientists. Following Bacon's scientific method, which is essentially a Christian pursuit, it assumes a creator. You can't study the creator's creation without a creator. But things have been changing. 
And not so very long ago, uh, an American physicist called uh, Brian G. Wallace made some notes about this. He wrote a book, The Farce of Physics. Now, this is a physicist saying physics is now a farce. And in that book, he says, the word scientist entered the English language in 1840, and few individuals earned a living doing research. Before that time, scientists called themselves natural philosophers. At that time, a handful of American scientists were taking steps to transform their status and image and separate themselves as professionals from those they considered amateurs. The major tactic used to create this artificial separation has been the elaborate use of technical jargon and complex mathematics. This erection of higher and higher barriers to the comprehension of scientific affairs is a threat to an essential characteristic of science, its openness to outside examination and appraisal. Because of this, Modern theoretical physics has become, to a large degree, little more than an elaborate farce. Now, what he's saying is uh, true, but I think he has not seen the reality. This is part of this spiritual warfare that is going on in every branch of our existence. And this handful of American scientists taking steps to transform, well, he took it, it's their status. But these transformations which have taken place have cost a vast amount of money. Where did that money come from? Now, one thing about Lucifer's servants on earth, and there are many, is that he is able to make them very rich. That's the one thing Lucifer can do for you. And there are many people whose only real aim in life is to become very rich. So, I'm quite convinced this is not just a bunch of scientists wanting to improve their status and their image. But Lucifer's servants saw how useful this science was, how greatly the scientists were respected, and how much uh, the, the general public was impressed and believed these scientists. Well, it was worth believing the scientists then. They were seeking the truth of God's creation, not for money, not for status, but to find out, and they were very happy to share it with anyone. Isn't God marvelous? This is the way he works. And this erection of higher and higher barriers to the comprehension of scientific affairs this is cutting out what's going on from public view. This is making it not the transparent discipline it was, 
but now unopaque uh, occupation, which only people with this knowledge of the technical jargon and the complex mathematics can understand. So everybody else can only look and say, oh, these people must be very clever. Look at this maths, I can't understand it. They must be very clever. Now, this takeover of science, which began in 1840, it was able to take over because of the power and the wealth of the people making the transformation. Um, Henry Dale was one of the last of the breed of original scientists who still regarded what he was doing as looking into God's creation to find out the truth about it. And in his retirement speech, he said something about science which shows he was somewhat concerned. He said, and science, we should insist, better than any other discipline, can hold up to its students and followers an ideal of patient devotion to the search for objective truth with vision unclouded by personal or political motive, not tolerating any lapse from precision or neglect of any anomaly, fearing only prejudice and preconception, accepting nature's answers humbly and with courage and giving them to the world with an unflinching fidelity. The world cannot afford to lose such a contribution to the moral framework of its civilization. So he realizes that this search for objective truth is a valuable, essential part of the moral framework of civilization. Now, he was one of the last of the old school, and science has been taken over almost completely by about 19. 19, in the 1970s, when Richard Lewontin was uh, entering the fray as a top scientist, and he also wrote things about science. Let's see one of the things he said. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation, of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is an absolute 
for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. He's not talking about the same thing as Henry Dale was. He was talking about a search for objective truth, not tolerating any inconsistencies. Here, we've got an acceptance of unsubstantiated just-so stories because we've got a commitment to materialism. And the only thing that really matters is we must not allow a divine foot in the door. Now, of course, this doesn't fit in with science is that branch of knowledge which follows the scientific method. That's a search for objective truth. And so, in the 1970s and 80s, the scientific establishment started a smear campaign for the scientific method and said, oh, it's not valid, nobody ever did it anyway, and it has been thrown out of the window. So when they got rid of the definition of science as that branch for the search of knowledge which follows the scientific method, they were lacking a definition. And the science textbooks that followed that, in the introduction, they all said, well, it's hard to define what science is. It didn't used to be. But it's now hard to define what science is, and then they would waffle on and say, science is what scientists do. And it was like that until Thomas Kuhn, in his famous book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, told the truth. And he said, a proposition is scientific if it is sanctioned by the scientific establishment. That means that science is whatever they choose to make it. But it's certainly not a search for the truth. Because the scientific establishment claims there's no such thing as truth. They say even if you found the truth, you wouldn't be able to recognize it. So their scientific establishment science claims only to look for useful theories. And those useful theories have to be 100% materialistic. Now, having taken control of science, they have made rules. There weren't any rules in, uh, in the real science. Anybody could do it. Anybody could follow the scientific method and look for truth about the creator's creation. Now, they brought in The idea that to be a scientist, you must have a qualification which they approve of from a university that they approve of, who puts forth courses which they approve of. And they can uh, enforce this because they have also defined science is 
that which is published in their journals. And now by definition, science is that which is pub published in the scientific journals, sanctioned by the scientific establishment. And to publish in these journals, the scientific establishment pays a huge amount of money to the universities. For every paper published in their journals, they give the, uh, the university, where it came from, several hundreds of thousands of rands. And the universities very quickly became dependent on that money. And that's only if you publish in these journals. So every year, the universities publish a list of journals in which their staff may publish. And if you publish there, the university gets all these hundreds of thousands of rands. If you don't publish there, if you publish somewhere else, then the university doesn't get anything. So they're not at all happy with you, and you're not likely to stay on the staff very long. And uh, they have, by this, enormous control over the whole practice of science in universities. That's where most of the uh, science goes on. Some firms have research departments where they're looking into particular problems which will help them make money. But general science, it takes place in universities and they are now totally dependent on the finance given to them. And they have to be careful that the, uh, the scientific establishment approves of the courses they give, because if they're not, they don't approve of them, well, tough luck. You won't get people qualified with qualifications that the scientific establishment accepts. And if they don't approve of your qualifications, nobody's going to come and study there. Now, this is not just by chance. It's part of this warfare. We wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. And wherever you find that there is a situation where you can influence public opinion, where you can exercise dominion, you will find the same group of Lucifer's servants involved, and there are many of them. And they are very powerful. They 
stay in the background. The, probably the only one that's there that you have much knowledge of are the Freemasons and the World Economic Forum. Most of them are very secretive. And um, it is also true that they've taken control of almost all of the theological colleges. Almost all the places where our pastors are trained are in their hands. And the staff, I've met many theologians, they say that they believe the Bible, but that is plainly not true by their behaviour, by what they write. And I came across a, a theological student. Um, he told me that in his intake, the class he went in, Within six months, every single one of them had become an atheist. Because that was the aim of the theologians teaching them. And uh, he'd become an atheist and he said, well, he doesn't believe this, uh, the Bible anymore. Um, it has silly commandments like going to the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And the Bible doesn't even tell you what the gospel is. There's nowhere where it says what the gospel is. This is just some loose concept that, well, it's like the rest of the Bible. It's all airy-fairy. Now, to say something like that, he obviously hasn't read the Bible. And for his teachers to tell him that, they haven't read the Bible, or else they have deliberately ignored what it says. If we look, for example, at Revelation 14, verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach them to them that dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. Now, this consists of two parts. There is fear God and give glory to him because judgment is coming, and worship him because he made heaven and earth and everything else right down to the springs of water. And this is exactly what Paul preached. We have one of Paul's sermon, sermons recorded in the Bible. It's his sermon on uh, Mars Hill. Now, he's speaking there to Greeks who've got lots and lots of gods, and he puts in a few extra words here and there. But stripped down to what he's saying to them, he says, God that made the world and everything in it, has made from one blood all nations of men, and he now, commends, he now commands all men everywhere to repent, 
because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And the only difference between that and the everlasting gospel which the angel was preaching is that Paul says, well, it's sometime in the future, um, but he's appointed the day on which this judgment's going to happen. Whereas the angel says, it's now time. And this same gospel you can see in the gospels. John 1 verse 3 says, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made which was made. And then you have Jesus saying, But I will forewarn you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Now these are absolutely essential parts of any preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything's made by God, including you. So God has a right to give laws on how you should live. And he has a right to judge you. Now, in that situation, you should realize you're in trouble. And now you are in a position to bring the good news that Jesus Christ has made a covering for your sin. And without this gospel, he made everything, including you, and he's going to judge you for how you live this life. Why should anybody want the salvation of Jesus Christ? Now, all the way back to the Old Testament, Moses wrote, and Jesus said of him, if you do not believe Moses, you will not believe me. Moses is the only person who spent time with God face to face for 40 days and 40 nights, twice. And after that, in the tabernacle, face to face. And God told him to write down what he told him. And one of the things that he wrote down, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. God wants the best for us and our children forever and he knows perfectly well. The only way for that to happen is that we keep his commandments, and they'll only do that if they fear him. And he rubs in our dependence, for every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills, the silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts, and the very air we breathe, everything we need and use, he made it. 
And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. He made us. He has every right to lay down the rules of how we lead the life he gave us. And he has every right to judge us on whether we did follow him or not. Now, some time after God made man and set him in the Garden of Eden, we don't know how long, I personally believe that the inner witness in the Bible is that it was probably quite a number of years after creation when there was a war in heaven and Lucifer was thrown out with his followers. They were thrown down to the earth and he came to tempt and try and break through the dependence on God. And he came to Eve in a perfectly normal form for a garden, uh, one of the animals, a snake. And in those days, the lion and the lamb lay down together. The snake was not a danger to mankind, not unusual to see a snake. They're often very beautiful. And he spoke to her and said, Has God indeed said that you shall not eat from every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the way Lucifer works. He uses the same ploy. You bring God's word into question, then you persuade people that they're clever enough to decide for themselves what's right or wrong, good or bad, true or false. So they don't need to rely on God and his word. And Lucifer is still using exactly the same tactics. Now, the Bible makes it very clear that it has a time scale of just a few thousand years. Now, James Hutton was a geologist, and until Hutton and some like-minded French geologists, the age of the Earth was accepted as about 6,000 years, and as indicated in the Bible. Now Hutton said, oh no, it's much older than that. But not many people took him seriously. So one of his disciples, a lawyer called Charles Lyle, 
said, oh, well, he wasn't very persuasive. But we lawyers know how to fool people. We know how to persuade people. We know how to get murderers off by clever arguments. So he said, well, I can do a better job than Hutton did. And uh, he came up with some lies, some half-truths, and a lot of deception, and um, a lot of very clever arguments, and persuaded a large number of people that the earth was very old. Now his arguments are actually so weak, one wonders how he could have persuaded people. And I think the truth is that many people wanted to be persuaded. For a long time there have been a lot of people who have hated the idea of God's judgment on sin because they want to live in sin. Now, he persuaded very large numbers of people that the earth is much older, it, it's millions of years older, so the Bible can't be right. And building on this, another person who had once upon a time wanted to serve God and had turned against him and hated him, Charles Darwin said, aha, this will allow me to make a convincing case that God didn't create everything, anything anyway. With all those millions of years, it's feasible to propose evolution. So he built on Lyle's millions of years to promote evolution. And lots of people were delighted. Oh, well, we weren't created by a creator. There's nobody who can tell us what to do. We can live just the way we like. Now, most evolutionists tell you, oh, evolution has nothing to do with religion. It's just science. If you go to the atheists, they know perfectly well that's not true. And if we see what a well-known atheist, Richard Bozarth, writing in The American Atheist, an article called The Meaning of Evolution, he tells us evolution destroys utterly and finally the very reason Jesus' earthly life was supposedly made necessary. Destroying Adam and Eve and the original sin and in the rubble you will find the sorry remains of the Son of God. If Jesus was not the Redeemer who died for our sins and this is what evolution means, then Christianity is nothing. Now you'll notice the, the attack is on Christianity. Lucifer and his minions have no interest in Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism. The enemy is Jesus. 
Now, Karl Marx was fully aware that this is an attack on God, and Marx was a God-hater who wanted to create a political system and a society based on atheism. Now, this was the first such society in history. Going back in history, all societies have realized, well, this cannot have happened by chance. There must be a god or gods who created this stuff. But Marx wanted to build a society on atheism. And he wrote to the French revolutionary, LaSalle, Darwin's book is very important and serves me as a basis for the class struggle in history. And writing to his big buddy Engels, he said, this is the book which contains the basis in natural science for our view. And Engels, his big buddy and uh, collaborator, said, in our evolutionary conception of the universe, there is absolutely no room for a creator or a ruler. And Joseph Stalin, that vicious pinnacle of communism, said, evolution prepares for revolution and creates the ground for it. So it's not surprising that our communist ANC friends who got all their training in Russia and uh, our Marxist system, the core, when they came to power, they followed um, the, the normal pattern of communism in communist expansion. The first thing the communists did when they took over a place was teach evolution before they taught any Marxist economics or philosophy, the first thing, you have to get evolution in. And when the ANC came to power, they had seen that communism in Russia had fallen apart. It was a failure. But Becky, typical communist, um, and the rest of them said, oh, well, Russia failed because it was Marxist-Leninist, and that doesn't go far enough. To succeed with communism, you've got to go the whole way. And we are, we are Marxist-Gramsciists. Well, who was Antonio Gramsci? Gramsci. He was one of the founders of the Italian Communist Party, a typical socialist international, what should we call it, propagandist. And he wrote, you must Marxize the inner man and alter the Christian mind to turn it into its opposite in all its details so that it would become not merely a non-Christian mind, but an anti-Christian mind. 
Now this is the instruction which came in 30 years ago. Now I'm sure there are many here who can come, who can cast their mind back 30 years and think what was our society like at that time. And Gramsci's instruction, everything must be done in the name of man's dignity and rights, in the name of his autonomy and freedom from outside restraint, from the claims and restraints of Christianity above all. Sound familiar? And the leader of the Communist Party, Blade in Samandi, where was he put? Minister of Education. What was the first thing he did? He brought in evolution into every level of schooling. This picture, the evolution of the horse, comes from a grade seven textbook and it was actually in a Christian school that I took the pictures of this book. And this story, the evolution of the horse, was shown to be not true in 1959. The display was removed from a public view in the American Museum of Natural History, relegated to the basement as a failed exa uh, example of evolution. It's being taught in our schools, in our junior schools, our senior schools, our universities, and by the marks that there is getting, it looks as if this pupil has learned it well. And then in the same book, we have all these ape men skulls. These have all been debunked. They're all forgeries or wishful thinking or their, skull, their ape skulls or men's skulls. In fact, almost all of them are tiny bits of skull and most of it is plaster of Paris. But they don't show you which part is bone and which part is plaster of Paris, you'd see how much is imagination and how little is fact. But even the evolutionists have now abandoned this whole idea of man evolving from the apes. All these examples have been shown to be false and now the evolutionists say, well, both man and ape must have evolved from some common ancestor. We don't want to know what it is. But it's still being taught in the schools as if it were true. Why? Well, because they've got to teach them something to get them to believe this evolution because if evolution is true, there's no creator. If evolution is true, Things created themselves. And if you've got no creator, they're wide open for atheism and communism. Well, 
in this 30 years that they have been in power and indoctrinating the public, and they don't restrict their indoctrination to the schools, the television, the radio, they're also full of Marxist, atheist indoctrination. And if we look at what used to be the case 30 years ago, the word of God was honoured, and in school, you would learn of six days in creation. Today, that is a joke. Now we have a big bang, where nothing exploded into everything there is, over billions of years, random collisions of par particles, followed by millions of years of evolution, gave us all the creatures, including us. And in those days, 30 years ago, you had almost everybody believing in the catastrophic destruction of Noah's flood. Now, you won't find many people who believe that. It's billions of years of slow deposition. But it doesn't just stop there. It goes on further. What God says about marriage, it used to be the common, accepted norm 30 years ago. Marriage is a God-ordained relationship between one man and one woman and is permanent. Today, marriage is a contract devised by man. And it has no more significance than any other contract. That is the generally accepted picture of marriage. The Bible's view of marriage. Marriage is honourable among all, and the marriage bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. The general view today, among most, especially the youth, is marriage is optional. You can live together without marriage, no problem. And it's flexible. It doesn't even have to be a man and a woman. Extramarital sex is fine, but preferably should be protected by a condom. And as far as marriage goes, the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. The instruction given to man is love your wife. The instruction given to the wife is be submissive to your husband as the church is to Christ. Nowadays that is despicable patriarchy and it must be done away with and outlawed. And then we get further away from sanity, humanist gender relations. There is total gender equality. Really? This has never been the case. Every society through history, male and female have had different roles in society. But in this society, there's no prepared role, no preferred role for either gender in society. 
Now, in order to get that right, they had to bring in the idea that the raising of children is not a noble calling. It's not critically important for society, and it can be left to paid childminders and government-sanctioned teachers. Well, we have now got a group of people, a group of women, wanting to be masculinists. They call themselves feminists. It's odd to me that they should call themselves feminists because their whole aim is to do what men were designed to do. But even the feminists really can't make a good case for that. There is a feminist mathematician called Cleo Cresswell. She gave a famous lecture on the mathematics of sex. And she compares women's hormone equations with men's hormone equations. Now, we look at the woman's hormone equations. There's one of them. It's one big equation covering one big cycle. It's the menstrual cycle. And surprise, surprise, nobody seems to have realized that men don't have a menstrual cycle. And it, you look at the, the men's hormone equations, there's not one big cycle, there's lots of little ones. And they're all short term. Now, just looking at these equations, you can see they were obviously designed for different roles in society. Now, God gives them different roles in society. A man is to, be, to look after his family, provide for them and protect them. And a woman is to raise the next generation of godly offspring. And you can see from these equations, they're obviously designed for different roles in God's economy. So one wonders, how can anybody present these equations and then claim there's no difference between men and women? Now, they call themselves feminists, but they're actually masculinists. They are wanting to do what men do. And there was a uh, program in which there was one of the top feminists interviewing another one. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, right, well, going further than just uh, gender confusion, 30 years ago, the word of God was honoured, and homosexuality is an abomination, as God says. Now, homosexuality is a valid alternative lifestyle. 30 years ago, the word of God was honoured, the only way to cleanse the land of murder is by the execution of the murderer. Today, capital punishment is an unacceptable infringement on the human rights of the murderer. 
Fifty years ago, naughty children must be spanked. Spare the rod and you'll spoil the child. Today, discipline of children, disciplining of children would harm them psychologically. And it's not allowed. And if you discipline your child, you can go to jail or you can have your children taken away by child welfare. Thirty years ago, shedding of innocent blood is an abomination. Today, innocent unborn babies can be killed for any excuse and at the taxpayer's expense. In every field, we see that this dictum that we must marxize the inner man to alter the Christian mind to turn it into its opposite in all its details so that it would become not merely a non-Christian mind but an anti-Christian mind. It's been achieved to an astounding extent in just 30 years. Well, uh, getting back to our uh, feminists and their progress and the program that was on where one feminist was uh, interviewing the other, Gloria Steinem, the one being interviewed, said, we are becoming the men we wanted to marry. But there's a problem there. Men don't want to marry the men their wives wanted to marry. Men want to marry women who are happy to be their wives. And for a feminist to follow God's instruction for a successful marriage, wives, be submissive to your husband as the church is to Christ. What? Me submit to him? It's an equal partnership and I'm having my way. Now there's a problem with that. Men usually are very easily persuaded to give up responsibility. And instead of taking their responsibility in the home, when his wife is demanding it, a man says, oh, fine, I'll go out drinking with the boys. And when you go out drinking with the boys, there are always plenty of girls around. And a session of drinking with the boys usually ends up with the girls. And that is an absolute certain recipe for disaster in a marriage. And is it surprising that there are so many marriages which are failing dismally? I've heard radio programs where there have been feminists there extolling all this feminism and they've all got totally miserable, failed marriages. And I heard one of them say, um, I teach my daughters, you can't trust a man at all. What's that going to do for the next generation's marriages?
I've heard a, a feminist say a, ma a boy is a pig, is a dog, is a rat, is a man. You know, that when you are going in this madness of throwing aside God's instructions for successful uh, marriages, successful gender relations, you're bound to end up in a mess and society depends on families. A family is the building block of the whole society. The family falls apart, the society falls apart. How did this madness happen? Denial of a creator who has assigned different roles for men and women. In our evolutionary conception of the universe, there is absolutely no room for a creator and a ruler. And this is not just happening in South Africa. It's, it's a worldwide program, and it's not by chance. It's deliberate. It's part of this spiritual warfare that the church seems totally oblivious to. Part of this spiritual warfare that the church is supposed to be fighting, and it's not. And it's being encouraged all over the world. You will find people like Christopher Hitchin and Daniel Dennett uh, and Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins. They are being given time on television, on all sorts of programs, radio, with their anti-Christian propaganda, putting forward evolution as being a fact and Christianity as being utter folly. Why do the media love these people? Because they are doing their work for them as useful idiots, indoctrinating the people. There is no creator. The creation created itself. You're not responsible to a God, you're just responsible to yourself. You can do what you want. There's no such thing as sin. If you want to do it, do it. Sin is a concept that man made up just for convenience. And the people who are involved are, they know that what they're doing is lies. Here we have a very famous professor of biology. He won a Nobel Prize. And he said this. There are only two possibilities as to how life arose. One is spontaneous generation arising to evolution. The other is supernatural creative act of God. There is no third possibility. 
spontaneous generation that life arose from non-living matter was scientifically disproved 120 years ago by Louis Pasteur and others. That leaves us with the only possible conclusion that life arose as a supernatural creative act of God. I will not accept that philosophically because I do not want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible. Spontaneous generation arising to evolution. But one person like this, choosing to deny God, could have not, could not have caused this worldwide turning upside down of the whole culture in such a short time. That took a huge amount of planning, a huge amount of brain work and a vast amount of money controlling all the media. Why did this madness happen? It did not happen by chance. It happened because there is a spiritual battle raging and Lucifer's servants, his minions, have got the field to themselves. They are doing whatever they want because the only opposition, the church, is fast asleep and it's not doing what it's supposed to do. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, this is a battle that the churches are supposed to be fighting. But if you look at the churches, you can see that commands specifically for the churches are being treated in exactly the same way. 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, a bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife. 1 Timothy 3 verse 12, let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. 1 Timothy 2 verse 12, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now, these are instructions for the church. And yet, you find not only deacons in the church are women, but bishops. Now, how do we recognize a bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife? Well, I suppose if you're going to disobey the word of God, you can say, oh, well, this is just the same as being the wife of one husband. Let the deacons be the wife of one husband, ruling their children and their own houses well. But God's instructions for women is not to rule the house, their house. It is to be submissive to their husband as the church is to Christ. 
But it doesn't even stop there. Nowadays, the churches are allowing deacons and even bishops to be homosexuals and lesbians. So is it now a bishop must be blameless, the husband of one husband, or the wife of one wife? You know, when you start disregarding God's commands, where do you stop? And it's not just society, it's the church. And unless there is a big reformation in the church, a return to obedience to God's word instead of the dictates of Antonio Gramsci, how are we going to survive? Does anyone have any questions? Yes. Brilliant, let's just say. Thank you. The question that came to my mind deals with the connection between Darwinists and Communists. The Darwinists and the Communists both deny a beginning. They both say, you know, it's um, from the goo to the zoo to you. Yes. Do the Darwinists hold to a future utopia? Like the communist hold, do they have a? Do they see an end towards which their theory is tending? Well, <laughs> evolutionists are uh, are variable. Mm -hmm. Some of them think. Now, if you're an evolutionist and you actually think, you have to come to the conclusion that you cannot trust your thoughts, you cannot trust your reasoning, because all this just happened by chance. And if it happened by chance, how can you know that it actually means anything? But one thing you can be certain of, if all this happened by chance, when you die, the chemical reactions, which is all that life is, stop. And so there's then just oblivion you stop being alive and that's the end. But there are, there are a, a lot of Darwinists, like Richard Dawkins, for example, who obviously doesn't think very much. Um, he thinks that his reasoning is wonderful and it's convincing and it's true. So if you are a, a genuine evolutionist, then there can't be truth. Everything is just an accident, and all your thoughts, they're just random synapse, um, what should we say, random explosions in the synapses. So, you know, nothing, nothing really means anything. So e evolution, if you're going to be a, a, a genuine evolutionist, it, 
is a very bleak outlook. Life is meaningless. There's no actual point in being alive. And, well, you can't trust or believe anything because everything happened by chance. And so there are grades of people all the way in between that and Dawkins who just has his blind confidence in the fact of even evolution being utterly true. Okay, well, if there are no more questions, would someone like to close in? Or you have, do you have a question? Well, I don't know from the whole everyone, but where do you think this is heading in the medium term, short term? Well, if the church is going to wake up, then there is the opportunity of a stunning victory. Um, these people are now absolutely confident. They are um, no longer having to keep things secret. You look at what's coming out of the World Economic Forum, the Great Reset. They are openly saying they are going to establish a one-world government which will have no electorate, that it will be the elite, the people who know how to, how to govern. No, it's this group, these people that we looked at in these organizations, um, and they are going to uh, look after the masses. They're going to have a new currency, which is purely electronic. And only electronic currency is valid, so if you want to buy anything, you have to be on their system. And if you do something they don't like, they can cut down or remove your access to money, the ability to buy anything. And they also are quite freely showing their aims in the fourth industrial revolution. I'm sure Christians don't read these things. But these are, uh, shall we say, an easy way of keeping Lucifer's servants in on the, the latest thinking and where they're going. They don't have to be secretive because, well, the Christians aren't taking them seriously, and it's only the Christians who are their enemies. And in the fourth industrial revolution, which they are proposing, um, the idea is to implant computer chips into people connected to their brain so that they are controllable, they will do what they're told, and they will be effectively transhumanist robots. Now, people don't obviously don't re read this. I am a, a research uh, fellow at 
Central University of Technology. And the electronics people, they're ecstatic about this fourth industrial revolution. They say, oh, this is a great um, opportunity and we can train up people. And they think that the fourth industrial revolution is having all your tools run by the internet. So you can switch the, electro the, the heater on when you're approaching home so that the water will be hot when you get there. This to them is the fourth industrial revolution. Read the book that they have written, which nobody does. It's all about making the people that they allow to survive to be useful robots. And what they're saying in uh, the Great Reset, and they're, they're openly saying these things, they, they're going to have to reduce the population of the world by a very large proportion. When the Club of Rome first came out with this, now the Club of Rome was initially a very secret society, which was given the task of getting all the plans into operation. Now there are a number of people who know about them. Uh, um, but um, they, first of all, said they wanted to halve the world's population. Um, then, just a couple of years ago, they were wanting to reduce it to a quarter. Now, the latest pronouncements <clears throat> suggest that they want to make to reduce the world population to half a million. That means they've got to get rid of an awful lot of people. And nobody's doing anything about it. They're open with this. They're so confident now that nothing can stop them. They're actually bringing this out in the open. And the Christians are still fast asleep. If the Christians wake up, I'm sure that all this could be stopped. But the question is, is the church going to wake up? Any more questions? Yes. Well, probably, as you just said, is the church going to wake up? What would you think the church must do? And again, in this sense, who is the church? I think we are all involved, like today, all the heads that have just heard what you've said is part of the church. I'm also worried. Uh, especially when you pointed out that uh, in one of the colleges or some of the colleges, the lecturers there are telling students to be artists. In the majority. In the, in the majority. Yeah. Which is also very dangerous because these guys are coming back to the same church we are talking about that that same church must, be, must wake up and we are receiving these guys from these colleges and it's surprising, Dr. Hammond mentioned something that go, he asked it, just a simple question. Like uh, the names of the, or how many, how many books are in the Old Testament? Then a student 
of a Bible college. Or have you, have you read the Bible? A student of a Bible college who is about to graduate four years, he doesn't know. Look, so, 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 so. I consider <laughs> the church to be the people who claim to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That to me is the church. And the people who claim to follow the Lord Jesus Christ ought to be guided by the Bible. It ought to be their most precious possession. And if it is, and they read things like, we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against spiritual principalities and powers, then they should be on their knees before the Lord, bearing up this situation and asking, what must we do? You know, there's nothing we can do. It's, it's Jesus Christ who has the power. And if we are prepared to obey him and seek his will, he will tell us what to do. But if we just say, oh, well, it's nothing to do with our spiritual warfare. It's, we don't need to worry about the devil. Jesus has beaten him. Well, Jesus is the most powerful force in this universe, but Lucifer is the second most powerful force. And there seems to be some kind of spiritual game rules where God will, will put his powers into operation if we ask him. You look at what Daniel was doing. He prayed to the Lord about this problem. And after a while, the angel came and said, look, as soon as you prayed, I set out to deal with this. But the Prince of Persia, he resisted me and I had to call Michael to come and uh, help him. So you get the impression that unless Daniel had asked for help, it wouldn't have been sent. Now, I don't know the the rules of this whole thing. Um, God has made the creation the way he wanted to and it works the way he wants it to. And we know so little of what there is to know about it. And his thoughts are as high above our <coughs> thoughts as the heavens are above the earth. So, I don't know what the solution is, but he tells us that if we turn to him, he will help us. And if we were to do like Daniel and, um, and pray and ask for uh, God's help in this, he would send his, his army to take some action. But it doesn't look as if very many people are praying for intervention in this 
situation and it looks as if Satan's minions are having the field entirely to themselves. God's people need to get on their knees and ask, what do we do? And how can we mobilize your power? We know he can defeat the enemy. How do we um, get that, that power mobilized? And there is something obvious there that we have some role to play. We have something to do. And it's only God who will tell us, and he'll only tell us if we ask him. Now, every morning, I bear this up before the Lord and ask that he will intervene, wake up his children to, to realize the danger. But I don't think very many people are are doing anything like that. If, if all those who call themselves by the name of Christ were involved in this and being like Daniel on their knees asking God to intervene, well, I'm sure things would be very different. Things can be very different. Yes? Sir, out of your perspective, you said that you enjoyed when you were atheist to bash the Christians and destroy their belief and also get them into atheists and so forth. But once you were converted out of your experience, um, what was the most effective way to lead people to Christ? Was it to win the argument um, on these platforms that you'd be on? Um, or was that just a tool to make the... Uh, as Proverbs says the lashes are for the fool so that the simple can become wise or um, what would you say was the most effective tool you used? Well look I have come to see that what it says in 2 Thessalonians is absolutely true because they did not retain the love of truth in their understanding God sends them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Now, there is nothing I can do to help them until they can be brought to the point where they can see some of God's truth. I have always looked upon my ministry as a ploughing ministry. That hard ground in their hearts needs to be broken by showing them that what they're believing in is not trustworthy. Or hopefully to show them that it's a lie. Now when you get people, as in, uh, in Russia after the, uh, the wall fell, the, the, there's a widespread um, feeling there. We know we've been lied to about economics. We know we've been lied to about, uh, about uh, politics. What else have we been lied to? And they were prepared to look at this and say, hey, 
But we've been lied to about evolution and the timescale as well. And that, having made that realization, it made them open for the truth. Now, that is, that is my aim with evolutionists here in the West. They are not as open as the Russians were. They think they know it all. They think they've been told the truth about everything. And it's more work to break into that fallow ground than, uh, than just one or two shots at them. On my, uh, my YouTube channel, there are atheists who come in and they all come in absolutely scoffing and then I, <laughs> I have some sort of supporters also on my YouTube and they tend to come in trying to to crush the atheist I don't I come in very gently and I try to reason with them and say well, look, in, in this episode or, or the previous episode, I think you'll find answers to what you're complaining about. And it's very difficult to know how effective this is because some of these atheists, they keep coming back and then suddenly there's no more criticism. Now, I don't know if that's because they've come to accept what I'm saying or whether they've uh, just decided to get out because I'm a fool or something. Um, but there is usually a soft... If an atheist stays on and looks at episode after episode, usually their criticism becomes much softer. They're obviously starting to think. Um, but I try to be as gentle as possible and I never expect to get an atheist to convert immediately. He needs to have that, that wall broken down little by little to the point where he is prepared to consider the truth. Um, now, on this um, point, I intended to bring some little flyers for my um, YouTube channel. It's very difficult to cover a lot of ground in an evening. So, I have put together this YouTube channel. It's one of the good things about COVID. It prevented me going around sharing this, uh, this message. I couldn't go anywhere. So I decided, well, look, I can use this time to put my, my material on uh, the internet. So I started a creation science channel and I'm now up to episode 54. Um, and you can find a great deal of 
what I think is helpful information there and a great deal which should be useful in helping the atheists you come across. I, I don't go to an atheist and immediately start talking about Jesus. I start on the points where I know they are preventing him from being open to the gospel. And if I can get in to make him see that these, these things he's relying on are not reliable, then I can gradually get to the point where he will abandon his atheism. But it's a lot of work. 